0: You did a great job. Thank you so much. Your parents did good too. back <laughs> The backup singers did well for you. Great job. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. look at verses 32 to 39. And then if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please stand. All right, starting in verse 32, but called to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. But of them that believe to the saving of the soul, Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord. Please be with me this morning as we bring this message this morning, Lord. Please guide my thoughts, guide my tongue, Lord. Please flow your message through me, Lord. Please help it be you and and all about you, Lord. And please get me out of the way. Please use me this morning, Lord, to bring this message. Please bless this message, Lord. Bless your word. You promised your word will not return void, Lord. Bless your word this morning as it goes out. Be with us this morning, Lord. Help us to, to get what you have us to get this morning out of this message and apply it to our lives. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So enduring faith. Enduring faith. We're finishing up chapter 10 this morning. Only three chapters left. Our text here exhorts us to have enduring faith in times of persecution. Uh, this used to be a more difficult. Topic to speak about than it is now because until recently, most of us would have had little idea what it was like to be persecuted for our faith. Uh, We still have a good, as far as our freedoms go, United States, but we can see those freedoms of religion eroding. We have recently seen Christians gunned down and murdered, apparently, simply because they were Christians. I'm sure most of us have faced instances of reproach or rejection uh, when people discover we believe in Christ. I've had people say false things about me, I, but I've never been beaten, tortured, or, or thrown into prison because of my faith. I have never had my property confiscated or my family torn away from me because I confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That probably is true of most, if not all of us in this room. Another reason that it's difficult to speak on this text is that American Christians for many years have have bought into a false view of the Christian life that emphasizes the benefits of the faith in this life. Hirelings have made statements like this, God wants you to have your best life now. Just give that seed offering and you'll have your best life now. Your problems will disappear and you'll enjoy life to the fullest. Uh, Jesus is marketed now as a solution to everything, a supplier of all your wants. Sales pitches at receiving Christ uh, will give you the greatest happiness in this life. He'll give you your best life now. Somehow getting persecuted and losing your material possessions, and maybe your life does not harmonize with that message. There are many Christians around the world who say, well, I'm getting persecuted, I'm losing this, I'm losing that. I don't see this best life now that you speak of. Uh, You would think the last month or so in our country that that message would seem to be proven false to many Christians in our country and around the world. We do not have our best life now. I'm very thankful we do not have our best life now. Uh, Some people, even some Christians, when they encounter difficult trials, may get angry at God and maybe even decide if that's the way he's going to treat me Uh, I'm not going to follow him. Hardships, persecution, suffering, that wasn't what I signed up for. But how wrong they would be if they made such a statement. For almost all of history, until the last few hundred years in Western countries, persecution, even death, have been the normal part of a Bible-believing, Bible-faithful Christian's life. And it's still the normal part of millions of Christians alive around the world today. I, I hear of it almost daily, weekly. I get emails about the martyrs around the world, and it's it's constant. It's never stopped. So how could we have strayed so far from a biblical picture of Christian life? Look, look with me again at verses 32 to 34. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Second Timothy 2.3 exhorts us to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And in Second Timothy 4.7, Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. The Christian life was never meant to be an easy life. It was never supposed to be your best life. Over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, in the New Testament, uh, we are told we will face trials. My voice is changing apparently, and I'm turning 50, so I'm just now hitting puberty, I guess, as far as my voice goes. So we'll try to get serious again here. The Christian life was never meant to be an easy life. I'm sorry, I started in my mind laughing about that, thinking how Nathan would react to my voice cracking, and, and he didn't disappoint. He, he, he was quite amused, as I would be if I was sitting in the same spot. So, so, the Christian life was never meant to be an easy life. It was never supposed to be your best life. Over and over and over again, New Testament, we are told we will face trials, we'll face tribulation, we'll, we'll face problems. We'll face challenges. We'll even face persecutions. In fact, the Christian life is often referred to as a fight or a war. Paul said that in 2 Timothy 4.7. It's also mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, the whole armor of God. Many passages tell us to expect trials and hardship. John 16.33, 2 Timothy 1, 1 Peter 4. Uh, the abundant life that Jesus promised has nothing to do with a trouble-free life or rather with having his joy in the midst of that trouble. Uh, Jesus stated plainly the requirements for following him, and I think this should bring it to the reality. This this should strike a chord with us. He he stated plainly the requirements of following him. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily, Luke 9.23. Right there, that should tell us this isn't necessarily going to be easy or my best life now. A cross was not a slightly irritating circumstance. It was an instrument of slow, torturous death. And Jesus tells us to pick that up daily. It is our duty to pick that up daily and walk with him with that cross. An instrument of slow, torturous death. So Jesus wasn't trying to tell us that this is going to be great. He was being honest that we're going to have some difficulties. We're going to have some problems. Things are going to come up. Our text comes on the heels of a strong warning against apostasy in verses 26 to 31. The writer of Hebrews encourages his readers by saying that he knows that, they're, that they are not going to turn away from Christ, or rather they will endure in faith in spite of whatever hardships they may suffer. The writer of Hebrews shows them that, and us, how to have a faith that endures any kind of trial, but especially persecution. If you are going to make it as a Christian, you must learn to apply what he says here concerning enduring faith. So we're going to look at how to have enduring faith. In order to have enduring faith, I submit we must look at three things this morning. Number one, we must remember how God has worked in the past. Call to remember, it's the former days, verse 32. And number two, we must focus on what God is doing in the present. We see that in verses 35 to 36. And number three, we need to look to God's promises for the future, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry, verse 37. So this passage really lent itself to that outline. Call to remembrance of the former days. We've got to remember the past. We must focus on what God is doing in the present, verses 35 to 36. Hit on that. And then verse 37 says, for yet a little while. So we need to look to God's promises for the future. So the writer Hebrews really gave us a neat three point outline for this passage of scripture. Um, Jesus' parable of the sower that we, we studied just a few weeks ago, in Matthew thirteen, serves as a useful backdrop to our text. Jesus described the seed uh, of the word as sown on four types of soil. Some fell uh, beside the road where the birds ate it up and and never took it never took root and sprouted. Uh, this represents the the unbelievers who hear the gospel but do not understand or believe it because the devil and his helpers stole it away before they could. Other seed fell on rocky ground where there was no depth of soil. It quickly sprang up, but it had no roots, so it withered away. The recipients of those that hear the word immediately receive it with joy, but when affliction or persecution arises, they fall away because their profession was false. There was no root there. The third soil is infested with thorns. The seed sprouts, but the thorns representing worries. Riches and pleasures of this life, Luke 8, 14. Choke out the Word so that it becometh unfruitful, Matthew 13, 22. Now the fourth type of, of soil is good soil, representing those who hear, understand, and accept the Word and bear fruit with patience, Luke 8, 15. So true believers may fail under pressure, as Peter did when he denied Christ. Every believer struggles daily about sin, not always victoriously. But if God has changed the heart, and if his saving life is in the vine, the person will repent, endure in faith, and bear, and bear fruit unto, unto eternal life. So, number one in our outline that the writer of Hebrews has kind of laid out for us. Number one, enduring faith requires us to remember how God worked in the past. Look at verses 32 and 34 again. But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, You endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. To have an enduring faith in trial, remember how God has worked in the past, the former days. Remember how God has worked in the past. Now, this—we'll spend the majority of our message on this point, but we'll finish up the other two as well. So, remember how God has worked in the past. The former days refer to the time just after those Hebrew Christians had been saved. The author draws their minds back to how God had worked in their lives during that time, in spite of some very difficult circumstances. His point is, you did well then. Uh, you can—you can hang in there now. Uh, and in the future if persecution has remember in the past how how you went through things how you knew how God helped you through those difficulties helped you through those trials helped you through those problems remember how you can look in, in the past now and see God's hand he's there with you now remember that so that also applies to us remember how God has worked in our past look back with hindsight and review all the blessings God has given you how God has worked look back and and count your blessings. Intentionally call the mind the many times in your life when you know that it was only by God's hand working that such and such a thing could have happened. Uh, we've had many times in our life we can look back and we're like, it was just God that that made that happen, that worked that out. At the time, maybe we didn't realize it, but looking back, you can see that was only but by God's hand working in the background that that worked out, that that happened. So the writer's saying, remember that, look at that. The writer of Hebrews reminds them of three things that were true of them as new converts, which are also true of all believers, including us. So this passage of Scripture is exceptionally applicable to us. First, remember how God gave to you a new godly understanding of life. Unbelievers are described in Scripture as being spiritually blind, unable to see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ, said Corinthians 4, 4 and 6 say, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. In verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Only God can command the light to shine out of darkness. Before God opened our eyes, we did not even see our need of the Savior. We had no idea how terrible our sins were or how holy God is. We did not appreciate the fact that the Son of God gave Himself on the cross to pay our sin debt. But then, while we were yet sinners, yet in that darkness, God graciously opened our eyes. And now we can say with equal conviction what that converted slave trader John Newton wrote I once was blind but now I see. I once was blind, but now I see. Next, remember the joy of true faith. We're still looking back. Remember the joy of true faith, no matter our circumstances. Revelation 2, 4-5 to speaks of this. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Repent. Many times in the scripture we're admonished to remember. Remember how easily man seems to forget things God has done for us, or how, or our relationship, or how God's hand has worked, or that at first love, that first excitement, how easily we forget, and how often God in his word says, remember, remember, remember. The Lord rebukes the church at Ephesus for losing their first love. He tells them to remember from where you have fallen and repent. These Hebrew Christians had known that same excitement when they had first come to faith in Christ. Not long into the Christian walk, they encountered some difficult trials. The writer of Hebrews calls it a great fight of afflictions. Our word athletic comes from the Greek word translated as afflictions there. It was a hard-fought contest at physical Athletic contest, it was a hard-fought contest with Satan vying for their souls. Some of them were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions. We get our word theater from that word translated as gazing stock. But as you know, back then and even oftentimes now, when someone from a strong Jewish family embraces Jesus as the Messiah, he is often made a spectacle or a gazing stock, ridiculed and rejected by all of his friends and his family. Some of these Hebrew Christians experienced that. Some of these Hebrew Christians had been imprisoned. Those who remained free showed sympathy to the prisoners and, and publicly identified themselves in solidarity with them. They probably visited them. They brought them food, brought them clothing, since the jails at that time did not supply such things. So if you were in jail at that time, you didn't have friends bringing you food, you wouldn't get food. Think about that. Uh, back in those times, there, make sure you had lots of friends. You're probably not going to jail. Otherwise, you're not going to eat. So they're in jail, and they're relying on these other believers to bring them food, to bring them clothing, to bring them what they need. And they did. Some of them lost their property, either by corrupt officials taking it or by mobs stealing it. Everything of value was taken, and their homes were destroyed. I want you to notice this. They endured all this joyfully. Look at verse 34. For he had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. You destroy my house, that was joyful for them. You take my goods, you take everything I have, you throw me in jail, that was a source of joy for them. That significant word in verse 34 is joyfully. They did not just grimly endure the loss of their property, being thrown in prison, or the many sacrifices they had to make for the gospel. They accepted it joyfully. They accepted it joyfully. Now that hit me pretty hard this week. How many times do we complain about such minor, insignificant things? And what they went through, they took it joyfully. It gave them joy. They know they're going through this because of Jesus Christ. And we complain about whatever we complain about. And we know it's just minor things. But it was a source of joy to them to endure afflictions, to suffer loss of property and goods, to be reproached, to be imprisoned, to be tortured, to be put to death. It was a source of joy. If these things happened for the cause of Christ, as a result of their relationship with Christ, as a result of what they were doing for Christ, it was joy to them. If only we always felt the same. That verse really just got me this week. Only we always felt the same. In our current day and time, though, many Christians don't feel that way. Many Christians would rage at such unfair treatment. That person cut me off in traffic. Rage at that. That was unfair. Uh, Maybe something happens, instead of just taking it joyfully, I'm going to sue them. Sue them for everything they got. But these new believers had such profound joy knowing Christ that they sang psalms of praise as the mob hauled off their belongings, leveled their home. Songs of praise. These were not rocky ground professors. These were not thorny ground believers. These were good ground believers. They were solidly anchored and rooted in the hope and to the hope of their salvation which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, Hebrews 6, 19. We must remember our salvation radically shifted our values and focus. These verses reveal four ways, I believe, that, that these new believers had experienced a radical shift in their values and their focus. If you think back on your salvation and your sanctification process, how you've grown since then, you should be able, I think, to identify with these. Number one. There was a change in priorities and values from the temporal to the eternal. The only way that they could joyfully accept the seizure of their property, destruction of their homes, all that was because they knew they had something better coming. They had something lasting and better. They had a lasting and better eternal possession. This doesn't matter really in the the scheme of things. In eternity, that doesn't matter. I have what matters, and I'm going to be joyful in whatever state I am. They had treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal Matthew 6:20. So that change in priorities, that change in in values. They knew that Jesus had gone to prepare a place for them and they were going to dwell there forever with him. They knew he was coming again to take them back to that place. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:19 hammers home this truth some more. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If this is our best life, we're most miserable. Paul says, in essence, if there is no heaven, if, there is, if, this, is, if this life is all there is, being a Christian is ludicrous. It makes no sense. Why suffer ridicule? Why give your money away? Why, why spend this short life serving the Lord? Why deny yourself the pleasures of sin? Why bother living for anyone but yourself? Better to eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die. But a Christian knows that this life is not all there is. Christians have shifted their priorities, their values from the temporal to the eternal. We have that priority shift. Number 2, there was a change from valuing what others think of you to valuing more what God thinks of you. These new believers suffered and made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions. Why put up with that? Why, why not just blend in with the crowd? Why not laugh at the same jokes? Why not just be one of the guys or, or one of the gals? Because their new focus was not on pleasing people, not on pleasing themselves, but pleasing God who examines the heart. They were concerned with pleasing God. I don't care about pleasing myself. I don't care what these people think of me. I only care what he thinks of me. They were concerned about pleasing God. Worldly people live for a claim of others. They want people to like them, and so their focus is on making a good impression. But those who have been rescued from sin and, and by the crucified risen Savior live to please Him. We should not be living to please man, should not be living to please ourselves. We should be living only to please God. One pastor put it to me this way recently. And the next time I talk to him, I have to let him know I quoted him on this. It's, it's rather a unique way of putting it, but I, I think it's, I would never put it this way, but I think it's a really good way to put it. He said, we need to wake up every morning and drink a big can of, I don't care what the world thinks. Of me. Drink a big can of, I don't care what the world thinks of me, and just do what we know to be right by God's word. Get up every morning and drink a big can of, I don't care what the world, what people think of me, and just do what we know to be right by God's I think that's very true. I think it's very true. Number three, there was a change from putting self first to putting God and others ahead of self. They changed from being self-centered, putting myself first, everything about me, how does it affect me, to putting others first and putting God even ahead of others. Every unbeliever lives for himself or herself. We are innately self-centered. We're innately selfish. If helping someone will get us some advantage, that we'll, we'll consider doing that. But overall, in life, generally, it, it, our aim is just to be happy, to get ahead. Even if it means stepping on others at times. But a Christian focuses on loving God and others. The two great commandments, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Christians write with the Lord, take their focus off of self, and consider others instead. So these Hebrew believers had showed sympathy for the prisoners. They were thinking of them. I'm being identified with them by going to prison and and supplying them and giving them food. That's bringing reproach on me, but I don't care that brings reproach on me. I want to help them. I want to support them. They were willing to share in their sufferings. They were willing to be identified with those in prison. They were willing to be mistreated. Number four, there was a change from demanding that God be fair to submitting to his sovereign will. Unbelievers want God to treat them fairly, at least they say they do. They think they want to be treated fairly, but I believe they do not really understand what they are asking for. For if they did, I believe they would stop seeking fairness immediately from God. If God gave them what they deserve, they would just go straight to hell. When a tragedy strikes, Unbelievers, perhaps they may rail against God and complain, this isn't fair, I don't deserve to be treated this way, but I'm so thankful that God does not treat me fairly. I'm thankful for God's love and grace toward me instead. I don't want God to be fair to me. I want God to be gracious. Some of these new Hebrew believers were thrown in prison. Some were not thrown in prison. God has different purposes for different people in regard to persecution and suffering. We have no right to question his wisdom or his justice. He chooses to send trials to one person and chooses not to send trials to the next person. We, we don't question. We should not question that. But the Bible gives us examples. example. Some of these Hebrew Christians, they're in prison. Some are not. It's, it's God's, the, God's will. If we are the ones who are not in the hospital, if we are the ones who are not in prison for our faith, then we ought to visit those who are in the hospital, visit those who are in prison for their faith, And show them compassion. If trials come our way, we should submit to God's dealings. Trust in him to work all things out together for our good. Romans 8, 28. We must remember how God worked in our life in the past. The first way to endure faith in times of trial, the first way to have enduring faith is remember how God has worked in our past. Uh, Remember how he saved you and opened your eyes to the truth. Remember your new joy in knowing Christ. Remember how faithful he was to bring you through trials. Remember how he turned your life around. Remember how he changed things. Remembering these things will help you endure faith in the present time of trials. Number two, enduring faith requires us to confidently focus on doing God's will in the present. Our writer Hebrews told us, remember the past. Now we need to focus on doing God's will in the present. And look at verses 35 to 36 again. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. The writer gives us two ways this is done. To do God's will in the present, do not cast away your confidence. He's not talking about confidence in yourself, but confidence in Christ. I've heard many Christians say you've got to believe in yourself, and that's a true statement. But we cannot just believe in ourselves. We cannot just rely on ourselves. We cannot just rely on our own confidence. We need to rely on God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves or are confident of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency or our confidence is of God. So having self-confidence, having self-confidence, you can do God's will and live for him. That's not enough. That's not enough. First, we must have God confidence that leads to that self-confidence. Then we can do God's will in in our life. Our self confidence needs to flow from God, not just ourselves. There's many people that could be very sinful. They could be highly self confident, but they're doing it of themselves. Or you can have God confidence and let that God confidence flow into you and give you that self confidence, and then you can go out and do God's will. I think of myself when I make this point again. 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 12 years, whenever it was, I did not have enough confidence to stand in front of a small classroom and teach a few people. But I believe God called me to that. And so God, I had confidence in God. If he called me, he would enable me. He promised to do that. So I'm like, I don't have the self-confidence to do it. But I had God confidence. And he gave me the self-confidence to get up there and do it. That didn't come from within me. It came from him. And that's how it needs to be. Our self-confidence needs to come from God, not ourselves. Our confidence needs to be in Jesus Christ and his shed blood, not in anything in us. The writer of Hebrews is referring to maintaining and testifying to a settled assurance of the truth of the gospel in the face of persecution or trials. To do God's will in the present, persevere in obedience. To do God's will in the present, persevere in obedience, especially when you are tempted to compromise under pressure. Hebrews ten thirty six again, For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Good verse for us. You have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Don't compromise. Do the will of God, and you will receive the promise. The word translated as patience has the meaning of hope-filled perseverance or hope-inspired endurance. We have a reason to have that patience, a reason to have that hope. Our patience should be hope-filled. Our perseverance should be hope-filled. Our endurance should be hope-filled. Under the pressure of trials, it is easy easy to justify compromise. In Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verses 7 to 9, the writer of Hebrews cited Psalm 40 to show that Jesus came to do the Father's will, namely the cross. It was not easy Satan tempted Jesus to avoid it. He told Jesus, all these things will I give thee thou wilt fall down and worship me. Matthew 4, 8-9. Satan tempted Jesus with a pragmatic solution to his problem. But Jesus resisted all compromise and steadfastly obey, uh, obeyed God's will. We need to resist all compromise and steadfastly obey God's will. even If it means we're a little bit smaller than we could be if we compromise. We cannot compromise. We cannot take the the pragmatic solution, the easy way out. We need to go by what that verse says in in verse 36, for you have need of patience. But after you have done the will of God, you might receive promise. Steady as we go. Do the will of God. Don't make those pragmatic decisions. Do the will of God. Jesus resisted all that compromise. He steadfastly obeyed God's will. We need to resist all compromise and steadfastly obey God's will. Number three, our final point. Enduring faith requires us to look to God's promises for the future. So we talked about looking to the past. We talked about the present. Now enduring faith requires us to look to God's promises for the future. Look at verses 37 to 39. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Enduring faith means to get God's perspective on time and eternity. Look at verse 37. For yet a little while, little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. The yet a little while is from God's perspective of time, not ours. The original quote was from Isaiah and it was written to the people of Judah who were being mistreated by hostile enemies. God has encouraging them to hold on for a little while until he delivers them and judges their enemy. We're to hold on for a little while. The point is this present life is yet a little while. Hold on, a little while. This present life is yet a little while in comparison with the eternal joys of heaven. Now you can see how those Hebrew Christians can endure all that hardship, all that suffering, all that loss joyfully. Because this present life is just a little while, and I'm going to see the glories of heaven. I'm going to get my reward. present life is just a little while. Just a little while. That's why Paul speaks the way he does about, his many trials in Second Corinthians four sixteen to seventeen, for which cause we faint not, but through our in, our outward man perish. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You know what Paul endured. He called it a light affliction. This endured for a moment, for yet a little while worketh in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What we're going through is just a little while, but there's something far more exceeding and eternal and glorious in our future. So to have enduring faith in trials now, get God's eternal perspective next, enduring faith requires us to put our faith into practice. Put our faith into practice. Look at verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The just Those that are justified, those that are saved, those that have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior are to live by faith. A simple statement, but oh, so hard to actually do sometimes. The world lives by sight. The world lives by plans. The world lives by pragmatism. But the just are to live by faith. Living by faith is one of the hardest things we'll ever do in this life. By living by faith, we relinquish control. And we give that control over to God. Again, that that God confidence comes in it's not working my self-confidence up. I could do this. It's Lord, I know you can do this through me. It's not we relinquish control, we give it over to God. Man seeks control though. Americans always hear, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Individuality doing things our own way, our Charting our own course, that kind of thinking is drilled into us almost from birth as an American. Yet to be a Christian, we are to relinquish all that and give it over to God and live by simple faith. That seems to be foreign to the world. It seems odd, yet if you actually do live by faith, it's the greatest life, the greatest experience you can ever live. is live by faith. The Christian life is a journey that has to be based on faith. Christian life is not a 100-yard dash. It's a journey of a lifetime. God's righteous ones, the ones he declares righteous through faith in Christ, Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, are to live by faith. Living by faith is not a one-time decision or action, but an ongoing daily matter of relinquishing really control, giving it over to God, submitting to him, living by his will, getting that God-confidence to give us our self-confidence to do his will. I meet many Christians who live by their feelings. Not by faith in Christ, we are to walk with Christ just as we received Him by faith. Live by faith. Live by faith through God's grace. Our aim should be to please God, for we are told next chapter without faith is impossible to please Him. Hebrews eleven six. You can always trust God, but you cannot trust your feelings. You cannot trust your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah seventeen nine. I hear that all the time, even to this day. I've got to follow my heart. No, please don't. Please don't follow your heart. Follow God. Follow his will. Follow his word. To have enduring faith, let eternal reality govern your present. Verse 39. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. The writer of Hebrews expresses his confidence that his readers with him are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believed in the saving of the soul. In essence, he is saying, let God's threat of eternal damnation of those that are not saved and your faith in his promise of eternal life govern the way you live. Let those facts that people are, that are not saved are eternally damned into hell and then your faith is saved you to an eternal life in heaven, let that govern the way you live your life. We need to start acting like we really believe that those that are not saved are eternally damned to live in everlasting fire and torments in hell and the lake of fire. I had an interesting conversation with the person who cut my hair yesterday. She kind of, I don't know, scared me, but she kind of surprised me a bit. She says she has this thing where she can guess what people do for a living. Said, so usually within five minutes, I'm about 90, 95% right. I could just tell how they, their mannerisms, just by analyzing them, what they do. And I'm like, yeah, there's no way she's going to figure it out. I'm like, she's like, I'm like, okay, so what do you think I do? She's like, you're either a priest or a pastor. That blew me away. I'm like, how do you do that? She goes, I don't know. It's just something I've always been able to do. I just can look at somebody within about five minutes. Tell them what they do. He said, I'm not always right, but I'm mostly right. That blew me away. But it also opened the door. And then we talked about the church and we talked about heaven. And she said she's stressed. And I said, Well, I, you know, we can, there's a solution to help you with a little bit of that. You know, and we went into everything. Uh, but that just blew me away. And I, I've, but she goes, I'm, I'm usually right. But we need to start acting like those that are around us in the world that at everlasting fire really exists. And as soon as she said that, I'm like, I have an opening. I have an opening. We need to look for those openings. The Lord will give you an opening. We need to look for it. So let's start witnessing the people each week. Let's decide each week. First, pray, Lord, give me an opportunity this week to give the gospel to someone. Open that door. Give me an opportunity. Second thing we got to pray for is, Lord, let me see the opportunity. Because a lot of times we're not looking for the opportunity. We won't see it. We won't even realize it until the next day. We're like, I had an opening and I missed it. So we need to pray each week to get one opportunity, at least one opportunity to give the gospel out. Pray that we recognize that opportunity. And the third thing we got to pray for is the courage to take that opportunity. Because we could get the opportunity. We could recognize the opportunity. And then the third thing, we're like, I'm so scared. But if they reject us, they get angry at us. Think of what these Hebrew Christians, that was joyful. Because yeah. they got that treatment because of what they were doing for Christ. So think of it that way. If I get rejected, I'm doing it for Christ. And that should be, make joy, it should be joyful to me. They get that rejection. So we got to pray for the opportunity. we got to pray to recognize the opportunity. we got to pray for courage to take the opportunity. So let's wrap our message up this morning. We should live in such a manner that if God promises about heaven are not true, we are fools to live as we do. Paul said, but I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, Romans 8.18. Enduring faith does not consider the sacrifices of today all that important in comparison to eternity. We have hope in Christ in this life only. Paul says we're we're most pitiful, but if there is a heaven and a hell, living by faith in God's promises is the only way to go. And seeking to win others to Christ is something we should feel compelled to do. Spend our time, spend your money, spend your very life as if God's promises are true, because they are true. So let's live that way. Remember how God worked in your life in the past? When you first came to faith in Christ, remember how he's helping you in the present. And think of those future promises awaiting us. Look to God's promises of the future. Live with that enduring faith in God, and he'll sustain us through every trial. He'll help us to spread that gospel message far and wide. Remember, pray for the opportunity. Pray to recognize the opportunity, and pray to seize the opportunity. Lord, we thank you.